In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Martin Luther once uh, famously referred to James's epistle, which we read from this morning, as the epistle of straw, because he said, these are his words, it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. So why was James on Luther's chopping block? I think it has a lot to do with James's very bold claims about the necessity of right actions in the life of the believer. As Protestants, we love to hear Paul tell us that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one may boast. We might balk then when James tells us that faith without works is dead, but here we are both in our canon. Of course, the difference here isn't insurmountable. We know that they both can exist alongside one another. I think in the end, we all recognize that something's wrong in our lives when the things that we profess with our mouths seem to have little or no bearing on what happens when we encounter our neighbor. I think even at my worst, I at least wish that I wanted to be better behaved. We all kind of know that. It turns out God wishes we were better behaved as well. Or at least throughout scripture, God regularly gives admonitions to his people to live according to the laws that he gave them, often which they have abandoned. Here in Deuteronomy, Moses is charging Israel before they enter the promised land to live according to the law. Now there's a stated reward system in Deuteronomy. Moses will later tell the Israelites that obedience would lead to prosperity and disobedience would result in discipline. It's one of the last parts of this second giving of the law where he looks at the two mountains and he sort of compares the two, one way that leads to life, one way that leads to death. But here in chapter four, Moses points out something else that the law that they have is a good way to live even in the present, that there were benefits even in that moment, at that time, for following God's law. Others, seeing the law that Israel follows, would respond by saying, surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. Now sometimes we in the 21st century might have problems translating parts of the Old Testament law into the kind of thing that looks like objective wisdom to the outside world but leaving shellfish and polycotton blends aside for a moment. There is much to be admired about the law. It's ordering of civil society, the space for forgiveness, especially when compared to the harshness of other ancient Near Eastern codes of law. According to Moses, the law is evidence that God is near to the people of Israel, so near that he is there whenever we call him, the text says. Observing the law wasn't just doing your chores so you can get dessert. It was in and of itself meant to be life-giving. It was the dessert. It was life-giving. Now, James, like Moses, has instructions to, as he puts it, not just be hearers of the word, but doers. He says that to only hear what God wants you to do and then not do it is like looking in the mirror and forgetting what you look like. Now, I'm not sure if James meant for the analogy to be stretched this far, but I'm going to anyways. I like to think that hearing from God, hearing what James calls the perfect law, the law of liberty, is to hear what it is like to be most ourselves. It's like looking at true humanity in the mirror, that looking into God's word is like looking at our true selves the way God intended for humanity to be, seeing it at its fullest. And to disobey what God tells us to do is akin to forgetting what it means to be fully human. And we see this evidenced in the kinds of things that James is critiquing throughout the letter. The sins of choice in his epistle are anger, quarreling, jealousy, speaking rashly, and the abuse of riches. He has quite a few things to say about those who are rich and have no concern for the poor. 
imagining a life typified by those things, anger, quarreling, etc., we can see how those kinds of lifestyles would gnarl at the image of God within us. And we know that, and yet, knowing that those things eat away at our souls, we still end up letting those habits take us over. Everybody knows that jealousy and anger aren't good for us, and yet all of us find ourselves giving in. So why do we do them if we know not to? The problem is that we can't just think ourselves into right action. How many sermons have you heard, or articles have you read, or times you've been challenged by Scripture itself with a clear and obvious change in your life that God is calling you to, that you quickly fail at, whether it's later that day or even an hour later? How often have you left from Sunday morning saying, that was such a great word, I will be different because of it, and Sunday afternoon have made no change at all? Knowing what is right and doing what is right are not the same thing. Of course, knowing what is right is valuable and important. But I was struck last week by a line in a letter that Stanley Hauerwas wrote to his godson on the occasion of his baptism. The godson's not Hauerwas's. He writes this, Like me, your mother and father are people who have become what we call in the church theologians. The church calls out some to think hard about the Christian faith. But I think you'll discover that the bearers of the virtues for sustaining the Christian life, or Christian faith, excuse me, aren't necessarily theologians. Instead, they're the people who, day in and day out, through small acts of tenderness and beauty, sustain the kind of life we call Christian. In short, Christians lead lives that would be unintelligible if God wasn't present to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God needs to be present to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, the well of our hearts is poisoned. Jesus points out as much today in the gospel reading. His list, as one translation puts it, includes fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, and folly. And that list leaves none of our lives uncritiqued, and it leaves most of our lives repeatedly critiqued. Our hearts have these toxic elements in them, and no matter how much we believe that these things will eat away at us, how much we know that these things will eat away at us, we still do them. Which is why James talks about needing to receive the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. We need something outside of us, something external to save us from ourselves. Now the rituals of the Pharisees were ones that protected them from being defiled in order to maintain purity, as if their own lives were already clean. To be fair, James does talk about purity and maintaining oneself. He says that pure religion undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That little addition is something that a bleeding heart like myself often forgets to tag on to James's otherwise social justice message. I like to talk about visiting orphans and widows. I don't always like to preach about keeping oneself unstained from the world. But whatever we take from James as a model for Christian living, whatever we think he means about maintaining purity, it shouldn't look like what Jesus himself directly rejects in the Acts of the Pharisees. The ways in which we try to follow God's commands can't have as their foundation an assumption that we're already righteous or that we're protecting our righteousness, awaiting vindication at the end of our lives. No, what we need is a way of life, maybe even a rule of life, as it were, that recognizes our own need to be changed. And then the change that following Jesus makes in our lives is the abundant life that he puts in front of us. It's the abundant life that he promised. It is living into true humanity. Obeying God isn't the means to an end, the way we get our payout. It is the end in and of itself. 
The way of the cross isn't the price we pay in order to receive glory. It is glory manifested among us. The way of Christ is a response to the word implanted in our souls, which saves us. And the fruit of that implanted word is the fruit of the spirit, a life that is typified by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Think of the contrast of those lists, the list that James gives here and the list of what Jesus says comes naturally out of our hearts, or the list of what James says that we ought not to live by angering, anger, quarreling, envy. This list of the fruit of the Spirit is an uncontroversial list to affirm as a belief. Nobody will be surprised if the church goes out and says, joy and peace are good things to live by. That's uncontroversial. But imagine the kind of difference it would make if we actually lived lives marked by those fruit. Imagine if the church were known for those fruit rather than simply declaring that those fruit are good. Now, there are any number of ways in which Christians have tried to figure out how to actually be doers and not just hearers of the law. And I can say a lot of my own thinking has been influenced a great deal by books like You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith, Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren, and most recently Disruptive Witness by Alan Noble. I'm going to offer this morning just one basic suggestion gleaned from both these books and our texts, and that is to remember. Remembering is at the heart of a lot of the prophetic writing of the Old Testament, calling God's people to return to him by remembering what he did for them. And we saw it this morning as well at the beginning of Israel's life as a nation, a preemptive call to remembrance. Take care and watch yourselves closely so as neither to forget the things your eyes have seen nor to let them slip from your mind all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Later in Deuteronomy, in what is known as the Shema, Israel is instructed to put laws on their foreheads, their hands, and their doorposts. James contrasts the doer who acts with the hearer who forgets. And I believe the way in which we remember more faithfully is not just to tell ourselves, remember, I can tell you in my own life, wanting to remember does not help me remember necessarily. The way we remember more faithfully is to take a cue from this idea of doorposts, foreheads, hands. It's to insert habits and liturgies and things into our lives. I use that word liturgy very broadly. That remind us to break into our habits, to break into our patterns that tell us there's a different way to live. Maybe choosing to spend one of the five-minute car rides between suburban commercial parks to be still and hear from God instead of listening to the radio. Maybe it's reciting the collect of the week every evening before bed, saying the daily offices, morning and evening prayer if you have the time, closing your day with the Ignatian examine, reflecting on what happened in your day, and receiving from God in listening prayer, slowing down, disconnecting, seeing other people, choosing to be quiet. The way in which we typically structure our days is often a way in which we unintentionally worship the gods of this age, busyness, productivity, Smith puts it this way, our idolatries are liturgical. And so if the way that we form ourselves into the gods of this world through focusing on the patterns that this world sets for us, the way we break out of it is by saying we live by a different pattern and we just find very intentional ways to break into our lives. I, I recently read a defense of sort of pre-meal prayers, again, not as a way to sort of magically bless our food. We've all joked at some point that the fries don't count and you can eat those before prayer, but the entree has to be prayed beforehand because that really has to be blessed. We've all joked about that. And when we approach it as magic, 
we're doing it wrong. But if every time we eat, we stop to remind ourselves, not that we have to pray, but that all good things come from God. The verse right before the reading in James was, don't be deceived. Every good gift comes from the Father of lights. When we do that, we form ourselves and we remind ourselves. And as we remind ourselves, we can become more and more like Christ and remember what God has done for us and remember the way in which we're supposed to live. We need habits, patterns of life that shape us and help us remember who we are and who Christ is making us to be. Now, it sounds strange to be advocating for these traditional practices after reading Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees for following the traditions of the elders. In fact, that's a very uncomfortable gospel passage to hear in a space like this, where the Pharisees are following all these traditions and observing rituals, and here we are in a very ritualistic church. But I can give a defense. It's okay. You don't have to all become Baptists next week. We can stay Anglicans. Any one of our practices, whether it's the things we do in the liturgy or the things we do at home, can become the thing whereby we try and control God, where we try and play the economics of grace and force God's hand into blessing us by doing the rules. We've done the steps. Now we get the payout. And in that case, any of them can become idolatrous. But by seeing that what we do is not to appease God, but to try to live into his new creation, that these things we do are not for God, but for God to form us, they can be life-giving and drawing us into God's presence rather than trying to force his hand. This isn't a call for Christian virtue signaling, for taking up these practices and being proud that you are the kind of person who reads daily offices, where we make these grand public gestures of our faith. It's to assert that our God is the God of the universe, and that he chose to break into time and space and save us from the toxicity of our hearts through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. And that fact ought to change how we go through this life, not simply in order to join Jesus in glory in the age to come, although we pray for that as well, but to allow the King of Kings to reign over our daily patterns of life so that we don't slumber in forgetfulness, living lives according to the liturgies and patterns of this world, but living according to the way of the cross, a different way to live that frees us from sin and enables us to do good. May we all hear from God, have our hearts inspired by what he made us to be, by what he has done for us, and then remember him in the patterns and cycles of our days so that we might already enjoy the abundant life offered to us through Christ Jesus. Amen.